Good afternoon and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Uh, today, uh, I have yet another commute and so I figured I'd start trying to fill up the deficit of episodes that I have uh, left behind in uh, the last months of... Um, Oh my goodness! Of the uh, COVID crisis of uh, not recording any uh, any episodes with uh, yet another episode. And uh, yesterday I talked about, or the last episode, depending on when you're listening to this, um, I had uh, discussed the state of the games right now, and I talked a bit about uh, a really interesting game uh, called the Genesis uh, that I'm um, ex- excitedly making my way through. And I thought I would. Uh, uh, maybe take today to talk a little bit about a couple other uh, topics. Um, one of them is uh, a bit of an unformed thought, so we'll see where this goes or whether it actually makes it into the episode. That will be about... Um, uh, I, I, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. The It'll be about having um, the the problem where like expectations of the game, I guess, uh, or ex- player expectations aren't lining up with what the system does. Uh, and uh, the other thing I want to talk about is just some um, games, games that I, I'm, I'm th- I, you know, plans I'm thinking about going forward. It's, it's hard to, uh, to really think about uh, the, uh, the state of kind of the, you know, the game or state of, uh, uh, of your regular schedule when like the schedules are so screwed up right now. At the time of recording, we just got in word that the um, uh, one in the past week we've had two major Comic Cons uh, cancel uh, as well. And, and while I'm not necessarily one to go to those all the time, uh, these are from like August and July, so it, it seems like our schedule uh, will not be going back to quote you know normal anytime soon. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about the new normal, you know, and um, thinking about ways of transitioning into a new a new normal that can. Uh, be in place right now uh, for when we transition back to regular life, you know, and everyone can go back outside again on a regular basis. So, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Let's get to the episode. So, for the first topic that I so poorly um, introduced, it's prompted by a video I saw on the Game Designers Conference that was posted recently uh, that was talking about cursed problems. And what that uh, the game was talking about is, or the the, the speech was talking about is how uh, you can have design elements in mind that are irreconcilable, where to have one, you really can't have the other, and then talking about ways to sort of work around that, you know, and um, it got me thinking, uh, it, it made me think a little bit about uh, ludonarrative dissonance, that, that idea that the game rules or the game mechanics are working contrary to what the story is, but that's not really what this is. This is a a bit, uh, those are sort of two different axes. One is uh, story and one is is game mechanics, Um, whereas this is more uh, on the kind of overall gameplay objective where it's talking about what experience you want to have. And the example they used is a game that has, like, player politics in the sense of, and not in the politics in the sense of, like, electoral politics or things like that, strictly in the sense of, like, players acting in concert against other players, um, and then also in the context of a fighting game. And 
It was interesting. Uh, it, it's an interesting talk. It, it it lost me a little bit at the end. Um, you can find it on the Game Designers Conference, the GDC YouTube channel, and I think it's only like a, maybe 45 minutes or, or an hour at the most. Um, and I, I found the last little bit not super interesting because I, I and it may, it may be that I just didn't quite understand the differences that he was talking about in terms of strategy. Uh, or at least I couldn't figure out how they would be applicable to role-playing games. But what it got me thinking about is, you know, uh, maybe a different way of thinking about some of the the issues that I have had uh, in uh, reconciling certain styles of play, like, for instance, sandbox play with games like Pathfinder 2nd. One of the things that, um, you know, the, the very clever way that the speaker, um, whose name, oh gosh, he's from Riot Games, and I can't remember... What his name? Dan Seeley, maybe. Um, whatever his name is, uh, I um, uh, I found his way of sort of summing things up to be quite good because what he said is like you know the if you are facing the kind of like Cthuloid eldritch horror of the cursed problem where you've got two different ideas where fighting game it maximizes uh, you know you want to have a thing where it maximizes uh, getting as good as you can at fighting. But then you also want to have politics. And if you want to be as good as you can at fighting, you can't also have that other element in there. Um, what it meant is that you, in order to find some kind of way around that problem, <laughs> you need to sacrifice. Uh, and I thought that was pretty pretty funny. And what I was, what that got me thinking about is, in particular, the, uh, the issues I had with running uh, the Barrel Maze game with the Pathfinder 2nd Edition, uh, either the playtest or the, the actual full game. And one of the things I had, uh, I've talked about that on, actually the first, I think the first episode of this podcast is about uh, ludonarrative dissonance in that particular campaign. And I, um, I've been thinking about how, or what this uh, talk got me thinking, is that maybe there's a different way of thinking that, is instead of trying to be, you know, completely a sandbox game and completely authentic Pathfinder 2E style play, then what I could have done instead is find more compromises, you know, and be okay with that. Um, the the example that they give in that kind of compromise position between politics and fighting, for instance, was um, Super Smash Brothers, uh, and that's not a game I've ever played, but I understand what it is, and I understand the appeal of it, and I don't mean in the strictly one-on-one -on -one kind of fight style. What he was talking about is the sort of fun party game style that you get, and I, um, you know, I, I think that what I, another way I could have thought about the Barrel Maze game is as a way of finding its own unique thing that's a midway, you know, making some concessions from the Pathfinder 2E play style towards the, uh, you know, the open uh, or the sort of sandboxy kind of old school random encounter heavy play that I, I was looking for with uh, the Barrel Maze game, um, where, while also conceding some of that, you know, uh, some of that uh, absolute random encounter stuff and, you know, sandboxing without any, um, you know, with, without any sort of clear story goals, I, I'll bet you I could have found a, a compromised position that would have been satisfying. Um, it would have been a different experience from both of those things, but uh, I, I bet you I could have found. And I mean, I did a little bit of that when I set up my random encounter 
things. Um, I, like I had some rules for random encounters that I was using, and I had rules for sandboxing. And all this came out before the Game Mastery Guide for Pathfinder had come out, so I, I hadn't really had the opportunity to look at, at the rules in there. At the time of recording, that's been out for uh, not quite a month yet, but for a little while. And uh, it is, it, I mean, it's got some fantastic ways of hacking the system to fit different styles of play. But I, uh, yeah, I mean, it might be, it would be an interesting idea to try that again. And like things that I could think of that I, I did not want to compromise on before that I might do now would be things like the experience point system. I might just throw out the Pathfinder, you know, 1000 XP and you get a level stuff and actually set it to be something closer. In Pathfinder second, there isn't, you know, um, there is a big difference between levels, uh, for one. I mean, like, the, you know, gaining a level and uh, the, the, the math that, that sort of drives that game, it does make a substantial difference uh, for it. But, um, you know, the, the way that the game, the pace of play for that game assumes that you're kind of going through each of the levels at relatively the same, uh, you know, same pace. Uh, and what I could do is, because I do really prefer low-level play to uh, high-level plays, I could just... Um, abandon that and adopt a something closer to the kind of XP system that I like with uh, old school games. So, I mean, that, that might be a, a cool way to allow me to, to see the characters advancing and uh, gaining XP at a, route, a rate that I prefer as opposed to what, um, you know, uh, what uh, Pathfinder uh, uh, grants. You know, like what, what would stop me from just using, say, the relatively speaking, the XP system from um, uh, or the XP chart at least from uh, whatchamacallit, from um, AD&D you know, or Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerer's Hyperborea and have that at, that be the way that I'm going to grant XP. The characters in Pathfinder 2 are a lot more competent than low level characters in, in the sense of having more things they can do, They can there's a, more forgiveness in terms of the amount of damage you can take, so you know, it would slow the advancement, which is always something that I prefer to uh, a really fast, you know, leveling up uh, game uh, uh, game experience. And it would allow me to um, just to not worry about uh, having the math suddenly change as, as we play through the campaign. Um, similarly, I could use the same type of random encounter chart that I was using before, where I have a preset sort of builds for... Um, you know, for what uh, experience point value I could have. Like, the, the way that I, I set up my um, random encounters before was I had, a, like, an, an XP budget for the different difficulties of uh, encounter, and then I would also roll on what was encountered. So, you know, I might roll a difficult encounter that was goblin, so that I would have X amount of uh, points based on how difficult they were relative to the level, uh, and that would tell me how much... Uh, of an XP budget I had to buy, like, quote-unquote, buy the adversaries from it. So that allowed me to still keep the necessary part of the Pathfinder 2E experience while also giving and and allowing for that uh, kind of random encounter element. Um, Now, the the thing is, I I think the thing that is important in, in, in approaching this, in deciding what things you're going to, when you've got two different styles of of game that do that are two different, I guess, goals with the game 
that may be irreconcilable, like, you know, random encounters with the more set-based, um, you know, our, our scene or set-piece encounters that you would get with Pathfinder 2, is figuring out what is uh, intrinsic to that experience, right? What's intrinsic to the sandboxing old-school play? I think it's, um, in, you know, XP that's not necessarily based on combat. It's randomness. It's an objective world that... Uh, Responds credibly to whatever the players do or do not do. Um, what is core about Pathfinder 2? Well, the math requires you to have relatively balanced encounters. There can be encounters that are, for all intents and purposes, impossible. You know, um, but there's also a really, you know, there is a framework there for, um, for the what do you call it? Uh, for the. Um, 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 uh, ran, not random encounters, but for the downtime and for exploration mode and stuff like that. So there is a really good framework for presenting, for at least synergizing with that old school style of play. So if the things that I need are I need it to be balanced, I need it to you know see loot come out in a more predictable way because you can really break the game with overly powerful magic items at too low level. But I mean, I guess what that that's based on the assumption that. You know, you need to have it balanced in order for that to be the Pathfinder 2 experience. And is that really the case? Is that what makes Pathfinder 2 core or it, like core to that experience? Or, uh, you know, do you not really fucking care? And is the randomness of the items, is that something that is more core to the old school experience? I can tell you my players in, in uh, my old school games, they certainly... Boy, they love the uh, magic items. You know, I, I've recently come to appreciate just how much they, the characters really become attached to those things that, that they find. That might be kind of cool to have suddenly low-level characters introduced to higher-level magic items. You know, um, and the as much as Pathfinder Two is fairly gamist, I think that there are ways to simulate and to easily accommodate the kind of improvised and you know, thinking out of the box style play that you get with old school, uh, old school experience or old school uh, sandboxing style of play. So I guess, you know, that that's maybe something to to bear in mind is if you do find yourself with that sort of, uh, you know, that sort of apparent irreconcilable problem or like they called in the in the talk a cursed problem, where you've got two contrary things or two different sort of play experiences that cannot exist, well, you're not going to be able to have both of those, but is there a way of sacrificing your babies to a degree uh, and finding a compromised position that is its own thing, that is its own unique, fun style of, of uh, play? And that might be really interesting to try, you know, especially if you're, if you're going to jump in and try and uh, embrace the... Um, uh, embrace that more balanced kind of uh, what do you call it? That that or not balanced, but that um, you know hybrid style of play that might be very very interesting to uh, uh, to try. And I'm I can't I, you know I, if I t- if I took time and thought about it, I'll bet you I can come up with some other things. But just that in particular was my you know my way of. Uh, the the first thing I thought of, just because that that I felt was not the most successful melding of those two ideas, but maybe what the problem was instead of just saying, "Oh, there is ludonarrative dissonance here," that's not going to work. Instead, 
think of ways of tweaking the two different uh, styles or, or type of experience you were trying to go for to find that happy middle ground. Um, and it's not even really a happy middle ground, is it? It's more of breaking off pieces of these two things that do not fit together to make them fit together. You know, to have this uh, kind of two pieces of the pie that were not designed to go together to make them work together. Because the example of, you know, Super, uh, Super Smash Brothers, and I, I can, you know, you can probably think of other games that are that kind of like, you know, uh, peanut butter and chocolate kind of thing where if they're great together, yeah, though you may not have thought that, although peanut butter and chocolate, obviously those are great together. So why would you not expect that? Uh, maybe maple syrup and bacon? I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but in any event, yeah, that is, um, it was a really interesting talk. And it's something that I think that I need to, you know, it, it's something worth examining where if you do run into a problem where you feel like the play experience at the table, um, and it's not because of the players and it's not because of the game itself, but it's because of the type of experience you're trying to offer is not m- matching properly with the game, the role-playing game you're running, then it's worth saying, all right, is there a way of shaving off bits of, of these two ideas to make for a syncretic game or syncretic game experience that will work at the table. I can tell you, I'm already thinking I mean, that the idea behind this um, this sort of hybrid sandboxy PF2 thing, that might be an awful lot of fun. I need to figure out what it would be, um, and I, I certainly would want to really dive into the Game Mastery Guide and see about, they've got some good rules for sandboxing, and I, and, and I actually know that there's uh, good rules for sandboxing in one of the other adventure modules as well too that I did not uh, I didn't realize I was there uh, so and I'd, I'd love those things because it, it it does a, it offers in a more gamified way than in say the adventure the uh, wilderness survival guide but it definitely gives a fun resource management uh, mini game that uh, that is applicable to PF2 that the players get to sort of make decisions over as a group. Uh, and I love anything that does that, where it makes the players focus on, you know, what they think the, um, uh, what the overall, you know, um, uh, what, what the overall uh, group is going to be doing on a round-per-round basis. That's one of the reasons I like the sort of ship operation rules from Fantasy Flight Star Wars games, the same rules from uh, uh, Star Trek, uh, and... Um, like actually a couple of the Star Trek games, uh, going back to the Ike or Last Unicorn Games does that. The um, Decipher Trek does that, and the current version does that as well too, in a pretty interesting way. Starfinder does that as well too, for that matter. So, anyway, um, that's just what one thing that was really it was weighing not weighing on my mind, but it was something I was really uh, thinking about quite a bit in the last little while about how this is how what it, what it, an interesting idea that is that like no 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 you cannot if you've got two irreconcilable things it doesn't mean you can't fix that it means you just need to consider whether there is a um you know whether there's a way of um mixing those things or blending them together to make it uh uh you know and by blending i mean chipping off bits of one in order to make it fit with another so yeah so anyway that is um that's what i'm thinking about about uh cursed games and getting past the problem of ludonarrative dissonance.
so I was uh, thinking a little bit about this first segment uh, when I was out of my vehicle. And, you know, one of the things I realized is that I already do this. You know, this is uh, an example of this is the my use of uh, narrative meta currency in my old school games. So, like, in my AD&D games, my use of Astonishing Fortune there, and my use of Astonishing Fortune in Ash, those are already kind of ways around what I see as the cursed problem because um, the games as written um, are, I, I just, I, the, they engender a level of kind of random lethality that I, didn't, I don't want with the, the game. I want the, there to be a little bit more of uh, a little bit more of a mitigator against strictly the vagaries of dice rolls. You know, I want the the players to be able to make. One of the things I, I like about those games is the um, you know the the way that the players are forced to plan and so forth. This allows them a little more of an opportunity to experience whatever bad thing is going to happen uh, and then plan accordingly without having to be stuck with just the lethal, you know the lethal consequences of something they could not plan or account for. Um, and also just to get around, like, you know, one, getting away from players having, like, one bad dice roll, uh, you know, from death. And that's, I mean, that's, that's really a bit of an exaggeration of, of uh, the circumstances. But but in any event, what it, what it means is that I want to have an opportunity for both play those games and to allow the players to see, to have um, the the feel of a more, I guess, like heroic or cinematic mode of play where they have a little bit of agency over how things play out, whether that's by negating hits in my Ash games or just re-rolling dice in our um, uh, AD&D game or, you know, making scene edits or things like that in, in some of the other games where I use those uh, that currency. So I guess, you know, in a, broadly speaking, house rules are always kind of a way of, of getting around that. But, like, you know, one good way of thinking about the house rules and and the appropriateness of them and the need for them is to think about what specific play experience you're you're looking for. You know, um, I, I recorded a, a fairly lengthy overview of AD&D 2nd Edition uh, recently, and that's one of the, the, the sort of thesis statement for that whole overview was that AD&D is a modular game that is designed for you to make what you want of it. And with that in mind, you do sort of need to bear, you need to think about what is the play experience that I want? What are the, what is the the goal I want out of this? Yeah, you know, is it, uh, is it, is it adherence to the rules? I I was going to say slavish adherence to the rules, but that's a little pejorative because adherence to the rules is one of the big attractions of running a game like say Pathfinder. You know, and some Starfinder. You know, so I've seen some Starfinder players who really, ha- you know, uh, rankle against uh, not running the game as written. And you know, um, that's uh, if you don't have that as one of your principal, I guess, goals in mind when you're running a game like that for for that type of player, you're they're going to be getting a suboptimal experience. You know, they're going to be getting that kind of cursed play because what's happening at the table is not matching up with what they uh, expected. Um, you know, people running around, just as an aside, anyone who's running around shirtless through a, a relatively busy area in the middle of a pandemic just should get hit in the head with a fucking board. What an asshole. Um, anyway, that's <laughs> just 
a very topical reference uh, for some knucklehead I just saw run by, but geez Louise, like, we're trying to have a society here, people, um, as uh, Costanza, uh, lovely, you know, <laughs> my spirit animal, George Costanza says, <laughs> um, anyway, um, the, uh, but yeah, I, I thought that was an, um, an interesting observation that I, I, you know, I already do this and this is what house rules effectively are is finding ways to, uh, to, you know, compromise on that original vision, which is the like rules as written version to towards a different intended play style. And I guess like what, what that assumes is that the rules as written do achieve what the authors were going for. You know, um, one of the curious sort of, um, I don't know, the curious sort of, uh, responses I've seen from some people sometimes is how they assume that game designers, you know, the experience from that game is always going to be optimal and always going to be precisely what they anticipated, um, what the designers anticipated. So we shouldn't make changes to the game, you know, because we're assuming that they know what they're doing. I, I fundamentally disagree with that for a couple of reasons. Is for one, they're not at my table, so they don't know what I'm trying to, you know, what kind of play experience. And two, the amount of additions and revisions and errata to different role-playing games um, over the years, especially for modern games, really should inform, um, you know, or should at least dispel the idea of a flawless, you know, game being produced. It's just bonkers. So I don't know, uh, like the. The reluctance to house rule things, I'm assuming, comes from bad experiences when, when you know, those uh, things have not been in place and there's been more of an adversarial or less ideal outcome from not having those those firm, you know, lessons in place or those firm ideas, or not ideas, but the firm um, guidelines and rules for which that everyone is going to abide by, but I don't know. Uh, anyway, that's, that's more of a, an aside, but um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of getting lost in my my uh, you know championing of uh, house ruling games, but that's just something I thought was was neat. I mean, like you know, another way to uh, to think about this whole cursed problem, because I guess like the the cursed problem or the cursed rules or cursed game, they're it's not necessarily endemic to the game itself. It's to how you're going to play that game at the table. The amazing thing about role playing games is you can change them, right? Like. You could you can play video games in a different way, but you're not going to be achieving an end um, in those the same way you can in a role playing game where you just decide like you know what I love I don't know I love the Conan game but I want to use it to play in Dark Sun so I'm going to do that you know uh, I love the Traveler game but I don't want to play in Traveler I want to play in, uh, in the Traveler universe I want to play in um, Babylon Five uh, or I want to play in the Star Wars universe. So I'm going to, you know, tweak the rules and whatnot to make it run like that and to give me that kind of play experience. Well, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, um, I don't know. I mean, that that's uh, the, the way to think of this is w- about identifying your cursed problems, right, or your cursed rules is for how the game matches up with your intended play experience, you know, and, um, and the thing that... I think that uh, I'm. I mean, I found my my players have been completely fine with everything always kind of being a work in progress. 
You know, like the accepted th- idea is that, like, look, we're going to change things if we if we feel they're a problem or if we feel we need to. You know, our um, current version of our AD and D house rules were just recently amended again, and that we're coming up on six months of playing that campaign, and uh, we're trying out a new set of cantrip rules that someone had suggested, a very kind viewer had suggested as something that might be cool to check out. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I I think that if you if you're going to do that, you're going to try, you know, these things, uh, understand that, that they may not work out. Uh, but you know, if you and your players are all on the same uh, page about trying to find that, that optimal kind of experience, I think it's, it's definitely worth the, the, you know, what do you have to lose for, for doing that? Uh, if you don't like the way it plays or the way the rules are playing out, you can always go back to what your, you know, what the original uh, version was uh, as well. Those, those rules as written will always be there for you, but you know, why not try and make the game, uh, fit more what you want and like this is obviously this type of advice is only for a very select there's lots and lots of people who are quite content to just play the games as written and they're not perennial kludgers like what i am and like a lot of uh, i'm to be honest i think a lot of you folks are as well but for those of you who are in the tinkering you know mindset you are the kind of dm who likes to steal ideas from other games and try them at, at or come up with your own ideas and try them at the table um yeah, I mean, this is, a, I think, an interesting way that, of thinking them. And I'll plug again, like, that that um, that uh, GDC talk was very, very interesting, and that's what prompted me thinking about all of this as a way of getting a, around the what I identified as an irreconcilable problem with uh, ludonarrative dissonance. I think there's, yeah. So, anyway, that is that. Let's talk about um, plans for the future. So, as far as uh, planning goes, and, like, I don't have any timelines in mind for this uh uh there's been a couple of things that have changed uh on the channel that is going to require some modifications or at least some alterations from uh what i had what we had been doing um i mean one of them is obviously i would mentioned on the podcast before but like losing a player from the uh modern age uh campaign um and then uh i mean to be honest from the uh the group altogether um, then that, that means that like that campaign, it's a happy excuse for me to, to abandon that campaign and find something else to, uh, uh, to run. Uh, but in addition, um, on our, so our Saturday sessions had been a, uh, what do you call it? Had been running a Pathfinder second edition version of the, uh, or set in the, uh, Magic the Gathering setting of Innistrad. And, um, I had honestly not really thought about it before um, because I just, you know, I'm an idiot. I mean, it's not like my day job is, you know, in the legal community when a fucking dummy. But, uh, I mean, it may not be the best idea to be mixing two different IPs for two different, you know, relatively litigious, uh, uh, you know, uh, IP holders. And I recently saw, not not directed to me personally, but I recently saw on Twitter that uh, Paizo... Now that they've got the Pathfinder Second Edition coming up on its uh, second year anniversary, uh, now that they've got you know the, the success they've seen, and there's a lot of streamers who are turning to running that, um, they posted a community use thing for for basically for their uh, for their games, and it's pretty clear that um, I I've, I had heard from a friend who had a recent. Uh, who I guess I, it's a bit of a this is a bit of a telephone game, but I heard from a friend who heard from a friend who uh, it, and that this friend is a small publisher who had received a 
or their friend had received a fairly aggressive look, quit fucking around from Paizo in respect to their IP um, not so long ago. So with that in mind, I, I got to thinking that, you know, while uh, the Pathfinder 2nd Edition Innistrad game is on hiatus right now, it did give me an opportunity to think of like, well, I really don't want to run into a situation where we, you know, we hit a point where I've got to either take down the existing videos or abandon that campaign as a result of bad blood between, you know, me and, uh, and Paizo. Um, so what I'm going to need to do is rethink what I'm doing with uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition with that group. Assuming the group wants to carry on playing that game in a different setting. Uh, now, fortunately, I mean, the... And I guess like one thing I should be clear on, I haven't heard anything from Paizo saying, stop doing this or whatever, but I just, you know, out, again, going back to the day job, which I should have been thinking of beforehand, out of an abundance of caution, we want to minimize risk, we want to minimize... Uh, bad blood. Paizo has been pretty uh, uh, a pretty great and pretty helpful publisher for us. They haven't like supported any charities or anything like that that we've done. Uh, but they've been you know, pretty good uh, in like signal boosting and stuff like that. So if I can get along with them, I will. Uh, so what I, I'm, I'm thinking about doing is um, not going back to one of my old um, you know, uh, uh, well, actually, there's a couple things I could do. I'm not, not going to go back to what I like to do, which is to revisit older settings. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, run something that... Uh, I'm not going to try and come up with some other uh, unique setting for it. Well, what my two thoughts are is, one, we just reskin this to fit in the Pathfinder world and then just make it clear that we are not, you know, we're not going to be um, presenting it in... Um, we're not presenting the, uh, the game uh, world in you know, a canon authentic way. We're going to make, take liberties with it as we need. Cause I just, I, you know, nothing drives me crazier than, uh, in some of these games and having to be trying to, you know, be canon authentic. It's to be honest, one of the reasons why I often don't run things in the, in the forgotten realms. Um, and why a uh, rune quest to be honest, scares the shit out of me because <laughs> the, the, yeah, I, the amount of uh, comments I would get on my YouTube page for people with me getting shit wrong, do not want to deal with that. Um, but uh, the other, and the other option, I guess, is to um, to use my Tulian setting, my uh, you know uh, the Untamed Tula that I use for my Ash game that I've run other games in before. That um, I think. Uh, it it would give another interesting lens on uh, Tula, excuse me on Tula, and uh, while I, you know, um, I have uh, currently I've got uh, you know what what that would mean is that there's no uh, there wouldn't be any use of any non-human species in there. What instead I, I might do is just say instead of taking the because Pathfinder Second Edition calls the the. Uh, the like what we would call races in other games or older games, ancestries. Why not just uh, embrace that as being like the cultural background? You know, like maybe you're from a rugged, whatever you know, sturdy kind of you know, um, you know, Chimerian style tribe like Conan's people. You know, and just use the dwarven stats. You know, or maybe you're from um, a magical or you know uh, a 
I don't know, arcane or occult influenced uh, family or, or family, but from background. And then just use the elves, you know, for for that. Um, I'm not 100% sure I, I'm going to do that. Like, I, what I don't want to do is have, key it up to being like, you know, Germans get this bonus and, <laughs> you know, Vikings get this bonus and, and Salish get this bonus. That, yeah, it's kind of, I, I just don't want to do that. That's not part of the, how, where the, not how I view the setting. But if we instead uh, adopt kind of a general, like, I come from a studious arcane background, give some players a little bit of an opportunity to indulge in that fun theory crafting of building, you know, characters based on different um, ethnic, different uh, rate, uh, ancestries in Pathfinder without having to introduce goblins and elves and dwarves and whatnot to a setting that does not have them. Um, and that might be a lot of fun, you know? I mean, it'd be an, another interesting way to, to view that uh, setting that is my own setting, so I don't have to worry about uh, anyone not liking it. Um, and it may give me, you know, prompt me to create some custom material for that too. Um, it would, I think, actually, they, and like the more I think about it, that would be really interesting. The The only downside to that is um, I guess I wouldn't, why, what I was going to say is I guess I wouldn't be able to necessarily engage, include all of the stuff from the BC area or whatever, but to be honest, I kind of include everything anyway. Like I, I include everything that's in the Ash Beast area, which includes most of what would be in a classic D&D style monster manual. Um, absent dragons and like some of the signature things like mind flayers and beholders and such. Uh, but I tend to throw shit in anyway. In, in Tula, Tula is not Ash anyway. So I've been adding in additional uh, monsters anyway because it's, you know, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to set the, the game there as opposed to in, um, you know, in the Hyperborea, in uh, Telanian's Hyperborea, because I knew I was going to make changes and I, I didn't want to just, uh, you know, present a bastardized version of his setting. I, I wanted to, I figured it would be wiser to just, you know, create my own thing and go from there. But in any event, so that might be an interesting uh, thing too, is to have uh, uh, Tulian Ash. The downside there is, I guess, it gets away from the uh it gets away from the kind of specifically horror you know gothic horror style of campaign that we were going to run there and what i could just do is is run it in uh, ustalov which is the uh kind of the pathfinders to be honest it's their version of ravenloft <laughs> so it's that would would be one easier way to do that but um but i don't know i mean i um i kind of like both of those ideas and maybe the best way to approach it is to tell the guys look this is the reason we can't you know continue on with Innistrad, but here's a way of uh you know of, of doing this of not kind of not throwing out the baby with the bathwater making it something that's not going to get us an angry um you know an angry uh email from uh, from Paizo or letter from Paizo, uh, and uh, allow us to still play that, the game that we're kind of enjoying, hopefully with a version of the characters that we still enjoy as well. So um, that's what I'm thinking about Pathfinder 2. I think I'm going to end this segment here, and I'll continue on in a new segment. Uh, talk about some of the other games I got in mind. Okay, I guess um, the next uh, things to talk about are some AD&D uh, possibilities. Um, I, at the beginning of the year, uh, well, technically, really at the beginning of the year, on New Year's Eve, I ran a, a AD&D 2nd Edition uh, session using the Dark Sun setting. And uh, it was fun, uh, but I feel like if I had, if I knew the system as well, 
then as I do now, I would make, uh, you know, we were playing some of the house rules that we have in place now. I think that this would, uh, it would have made for an even better session. Um, the Dark Sun setting is something that I've just loved for, for years and years and, and have really only dabbled with, never really run in a long-term, uh, you know, for a long-term basis. And I think that, um, I think that that would be, you know, it, it's a, it's something that needs to happen now that I'm in this phase of, uh, of really loving AD&D. Tentatively, what I'm sort of thinking is that when uh, the uh, Legacy of the Crystal Shard uh, game is over with, that maybe uh, Dark Sun might be a good, uh, you know, uh, next campaign for that. Uh, but I, right now, I do not want to rush uh, through it, and I certainly don't want to uh, uh, to end Night Below. Night Below, I'm, I'm, uh, which is what we run on Wednesdays and Fridays fantastic game you know i mean it's been we're coming up on five or six months of it right now which is really cool and i mean we passed our 30th session of it recently so this that game's got some real legs to it and it feels like it's just going from strength to strength uh and it would be very cool to see if we could do something similar with dark sun you know um particularly you know i think you could capture the high-powered hero and cinematic flavor uh of you know the dark sun fiction by using uh, the house rules that we use so i'm pretty excited for that i think that that's going to be um something really great to to try uh ad and d has been an enormous amount of fun to run and I, I just i love going back to those books i love working on the campaign and uh i love how easy it is to maintain a big group with it and that's one thing i guess i uh uh, another thing to, to think about for planning is um, I, the, the small groups have been good, uh, you know, over the past year. Uh, we, unfortunately, the small groups went down from what was intended to be about five players down to usually about three on average. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's fine. Like life gets in the way and, and people can't always make every session. But without the, you know, when you're down even to three players um, and if you're having an inconsistent amount of players show up if you got a four-player group and one of them isn't able to make a, a session say even one of them isn't able to make you know uh, uh, only one of the sessions uh you know per month that means you're missing 25 percent of your party you know uh, that often uh, whereas with these larger games uh, it's a lot easier to kind of maintain the momentum of the game i just got coughed on by my dog honey you're supposed to <laughs> you're supposed to cough in your arm Goofball. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the thing that is, um, another thing that's really lovely about the, you know, these uh, bigger party games is that we, it's very, very, very rare when I have to come up with something else. Regular, you know, listeners of the podcast will know that I loathe canceling a gaming session. If there's a gaming session scheduled, we're playing something. I don't know what necessarily, uh, but uh, we're going to play something because I, I just... Once we have that time set aside, I take that as a commitment to the players who do show up that we're playing something. But I've only had to really do that a couple of times in the last little while. And, you know, like there's a lot of games that I really would love to, you know, to revisit or to try and explore. Uh, Degenesis is definitely something I want to explore. Like I really do want to get a game going of that, especially since it's free for, you know, for uh, PDFs. It's very easy to get that in the hands of the players. Uh, I also am really, really, really impressed with the uh, uh, the setting. It's it's very cool. Uh, it's I think taking the place of uh, Simba Room right now. Uh, as far as my current obsession, I, I really do love Simba Room, but I've got a lot of fantasy games on the go, and I can't think of the last time I ran an ongoing 
uh, a post-apocalyptic game. Uh, in fact, I, I guess I can. It's probably about three years ago or four years ago. So, um, so that's pretty. That that one definitely. I really want to get to the table as well. Um, our uh, Dracula dossier game. I'm I'm really looking forward to finishing off that adventure. But um, I had intended to sort of carry on with it. But I don't know with that game and with that campaign. But I honestly don't know. Um, I I want to get an honest. Uh, opinion from the players as to how they feel about it because I know there's maybe like me and maybe one of the other players are really really keen on it and the others are okay with it uh, and you know what I'd like to I'd much prefer to find something that everyone's really you know bananas about playing uh, than to uh, have something that people are simply okay with um, I want to get some more superhero stuff uh, to the table I, I and depending on my on the day you catch me I that might be you know uh, that might, well, I guess hope, before I get to the superhero stuff, let's talk about uh, Savage Rifts, because as much as I had said uh, yesterday, like, well, Savage Rifts is kind of goofy, I, I really do want to get that to the table uh, in before the year's end as well, too, and play at least a, a session of that. Savage Worlds is something that I just, I always, always have fun playing. It's, it's a, it's some stupid, stubborn thing in me that is preventing me from running it, but like, the Ripper's setting and the Ripper's box set, which I've got, is fantastic. It looks like a, a really, really... It's exactly the kind of setting that I love where, you know, the, the uh, ex, it's a gothic horror, uh, but it's pulpy in action, uh, and it's got a, a neat little twist to it to of characters incorporating the organs of monsters in their bodies, and it's got some classic, um, you know, uh, classic monsters in it as well. Um I really like uh, experience points advancement in Savage Worlds. It, it feels very organic and and uh, it's steady as well too. Without the characters, you know, okay, all right, someone's growling at me. Um, without them going up into superhero territory, or at least like a different. Not, I mean, they're going to kind of be low level superheroes, but I guess I mean that they don't transform to being different from what a different scale of hero than what they were before. You know, like the, um, the, the, they don't go from the farm hand to the, you know, demigod the way that you do in, in, uh, like one to 20 in, in D&D or AD&D. Um, the, uh, let's see here. So there's that and the Savage Rifts just too, like the, the books are incredible. Um, it's very much Rifts. So it's very bonkers, you know, kitchen sinky kind of setting, but this version is easily, I think the strongest version released to date. Um, and the books are, you know, all in color. They're beautiful. Uh, and it, I, yeah, I, I really should just, again, like I, I, I have such a good time every time I run uh, Savage Worlds, I really need to just embrace that and, uh, <laughs> and just play the darn game. Um, so that's, that's that. I mean, either Savage Rifts or, or Rippers, I, I need to, to try again. Superheroes, um, it's, you know, I alternate between Marvel Superheroes, the classic version, because that's such a fun game. The last time we ran that, that was a lot of fun. DC Heroes, uh, the second edition of that, because I, I I do really have a soft spot for those characters. I'm I enjoy all comic books, so this is only really by gradations. But I think I like DC Heroes a little bit better than I do uh, Marvel Heroes. I like a lot of, um, I, I mean, so I and I I don't think I've ever. Well, no, that's not true. It's been I ran uh, DC Adventures before, but. I really would like to try that game again. Uh, Champions. Uh, every time I have someone mention Champions again, I really want to revisit that. I think the 
the thing with champions is is uh, I would need to just embrace some house rules, you know, further to what I had said before about uh, finding ways to sort of sacrifice your babies. There's certain things about champions I may have to sacrifice in order to get the, the style of play I want, uh, like embracing some, um, you know, minion rules and things like that, just to, uh, you know, to uh, to make the game play at a more, to make the game meet or fit the sort of expectations I have for hero games. Although, I mean, you know, I guess like the sensibilities of the very, very simulationist aspect of champions, that's something that I could just embrace as well too and run. You know, I've, I've mentioned before on the podcast that the thing I really like about how champions feels mechanically at the table is it feels very tactile. It feels very, you know, because it's so simulationist, it feels more Marvel uh, cinematic universe than it does comic book. And I really do like that an awful lot. Um, and uh, the last time I ran it, I was running it with a very... I mean, technically the last time I ran it was a open table session that was just a big fight. So that was... I don't really count that. That was more just combat encounter. That was dressed up with a little bit of uh, role-playing. Uh, but the the um, four-part um, Dead of Winter, or whatever I called the, the session... Uh, that I ran recently, uh, or last year, uh, that one was a four-part thing, and I I wanted to get it done in four parts, so I really feel like I rushed the uh, I rushed the story along faster than I would I would prefer to have it play out. But I think that um, yeah, I mean I, I I think that Champions is definitely owed another look here um, by me and to try and run it at the sort of pace with the sensibilities that I would like from it. Because I every time I have run it, I've really enjoyed it. And usually the reason I, I stop running it is because I feel um, overwhelmed with having to sort of teach the, the game and monitor the game side of it. But that also could be because I'm putting so much, you know, so much combat in it. If I, if I uh, get away from just the, the, the fun combat and trying to, you know, have that be the be-all and end-all... Uh, the big superhero slugfest, which the game does incredibly well, which is probably why I try and incorporate so much of it. Um, yeah, so I mean, that's yeah. I think it's a game that's worth a. Uh, it's got a really interesting uh, fan base too, that I think is similar in some ways to the some of the uh, the OSR uh, base, where like the people have a, a very certain idea of how to run the game and it'll be interesting to see the response of running the game the way I like running these games I, I don't think that it fits with a lot of the um, uh, just based on the people I've, I've uh, some of the people I've met uh, on the hero forums we have some people on the dungeon musings forums who are not like that and are not as married to the uh, you know uh, to the uh, to having to run you know uh, champions or hero specifically the way that it's written but uh, yeah it's pretty good you know, I think it's further to something I mentioned earlier in the episode too. That is something to, to recognize that some champions players, if you're not running the game the way it's written, uh, then that will take away from their fun. You know, they they want the game to to play out the way that they've anticipated it. And it it's interesting because I've played with a, quite a few players as well recently where they have not required that. You know, they did not um, uh, they did not need it to be run the way that. Uh, um, the way that the game is written. Uh, sorry, my son came home and my dog wanted to say hi very badly. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess this is a long way of saying, you know, of the games that, um, uh, the, the superhero games, 
I, I, I like... I mean, I like all of them. They're they're all really great. I even like the Savage Worlds uh, superhero companion. I think it's pretty great. Means of Masterminds is a great game as well too. None of these things are are bad options for it. it. But it's just weird that I seem I seem to go back to Champions all the time. It's probably a nostalgia thing. Um, it's probably a connection with those uh, characters as well too. Like the uh, if you're not familiar with Champions, it's um, the game has a um, roster of villains. And that really date back to the like the original editions of the games, like Doctor Destroyer and Ogre and uh, Pulsar and stuff like that. And they, for me, like they they have probably uh, equally you know equal billing in terms of like nostalgic appeal um, as you know like Batman and and some of the uh, more obscure Marvel characters and stuff like that. Like it's just they're great characters, and I uh, I've lived with them for most of my life, so I I um, I have a, a great fondness for that world so um and yeah i've talked before about how the i think that particular setting does a really good uh or that particular game does a really good job of creating a setting that is both recognizable but also fresh you know like um viper is kind of like well i'm an on awful lot like hydra so you kind of players know what it is but it is its own thing as well dr destroyer's got kind of a you know, Doctor Doom meets, um, I guess, Red Skull kind of thing, because he's both a genius scientist and power armor wearing Nazi. Um, yeah, it's it's just it's it's a pretty great thing, pretty great to. Yeah, and I guess like the only thing I would uh, I would probably want to get used to is um, improvising stuff. Is as uh, that that is a big thing that I like doing is being able to improvise and uh, eyeball difficulties. So clearly, I mean, with the amount of uh, space in this episode I'm wasting talking about champions, that, that clearly is going to be a little higher on the list than what some of these other games are. So i got to get me some champions back to the table. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that really is jumping out right now. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, with the, the only... So the downside to the champions idea is that, uh, that of a big group. Uh, I don't think champions works particularly well for a big group um at least not in combat because it does take quite some time um but i wonder if that would speed with the you know speed up with the uh uh with proper preparation and with uh proper um what do you call it uh and when i say preparation i mean on my side and proper uh you know player uh knowledge like having players who really understand the system understand what they can do with it uh, at least in combat and then also really trying to you know use those rules to explore the other side of um, you know of uh, superheroes like the more the fights are, are a phenomenal part of uh, champions but I really would like to run a proper proper like superhero game uh, you know that would be a, a really cool thing to run and also I mean I think that the experience points um, advancement in champions is the kind of thing that would just uh, it would really, really suit my sensibilities where I'm just tossing out points and then maintaining power caps uh, so that uh, players can get more diverse uh, rather than, um, you know... And I might actually experiment with uh, forcing expenditures across different things, like, you know, having to spend your first whatever, um, you know, as equal amounts maybe between um, uh, powers and everything else. Uh, you know, anything that is a superhero or superpower thing, you, you need to spend between skills and perks and things like that as well, too. That's, I, this is, I'm lapsing into very, you know, niche <laughs> game mechanic stuff only for champions, but, uh, and anyway, I mean, it's, it's something that uh, I think is worth, uh, worth thinking about. Um, I also, uh, uh, when I, before all this 
COVID-19 bullshit uh, came uh, crashing in too. I had recently celebrated a promotion with uh, a bunch of um, fourth edition uh, champion stuff. So it might be kind of fun to, to re- reacquaint myself with that, you know, with that edition as well too and, and run some stuff. Because I have, that's the, the edition that I played the most. Apart from sixth edition, I guess I'm playing quite a bit of sixth, uh, relatively speaking. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess those are the ones that are really, really jumping out. There's some other ones, uh, that I, you know, I, I think are, are good games and I, and I like, you know, I kind of, they catch my eye sometimes, but the ones that I'm really like, um, I'd love to see some of the players play with these, uh, those, the, uh, Star Trek Adventures is another one that I think I would, I'd really like to get back once we actually start playing, but it's not a game that, it's a game that would require me to go back and relearn the, the system, because it is a, um, uh, it's a, it is a fairly complicated game, and it, um, it definitely rec- it is not something that I, I am, remember well enough to be able to pick up and just go with it. So, Degenesis, AD&D, uh, Champions, oddly enough, you know, I'm looking around my office and like there's a bunch of other games that I really, I think are really cool and like uh, Traveler, I would, you know, Traveler would probably be an awful lot of fun to uh, to get back to as well too, but I got to figure out how to scale that up a little bit to allow for more players, I think. Um, you know, uh, uh, Warhammer Fantasy IV, uh, uh, Pendragon, um, 7th C, 2nd edition, is really, really cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, Pathfinder first. Uh, I still have some uh, ideas for how to run that as a, a six-level cap, but I guess the 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 ones that really, you know, um, I, I know I'd be having a great time with, I'm, and I'm, it's not really a fair way of saying it, I'm sure I'd have a great time with these other ones as well. Starfinder actually as well too. Starfinder is another one that we had a, a one-shot of it recently that was just a shit ton of fun, and uh, that game is so good. <laughs> it's so much fun. Um, there's problems, you know, with the math, I guess, in, in, and there's problems with the gear, you know, aspects of it. And, um, but boy, is it a, just a shit ton of fun to play, uh, the setting and the characters, the players get to play are just, it, I, I think work really, really, really well. Um, so that's that. I mean, I guess that, that is the, uh, some of the other games I'm, I've been thinking about in terms of, uh, planning. Let's, uh, let's maybe call this, uh, one an episode and make it with the outro. Okay, so that is another episode. Two days down, two episodes out. I wonder if uh, tomorrow will prove to be as productive. Well, I guess we'll have to see how much time I get in the Jeep. Um, as always, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding the episode, please do not hesitate to um, shoot me a voicemail on uh, Anchor. You can reach me on Twitter at Dungeon Musings. You can reach me by email. My email is dungeonmusings at gmail.com. If you go to the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel, you can find links there to... Uh, the Dungeon Musings Discord server as well, and the Dungeon Musings uh, Patreon. Um, in addition, you can also... Um, no, that's all. That is all. <laughs> Those are all the ways you can reach me. Um, otherwise, uh, thank you so much for listening. I hope that this finds you healthy, safe, and weathering the current crisis as well as can be expected. And I hope that you're getting some chance to squeeze in a little extra gaming uh, in this uh, time when we're all stuck indoors. Uh, Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed. And until we see you again, happy gaming.